April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., also joining us from Washington, D.C., are our very good friends, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. How are you, Rosa? I'm very well. Thank you, David. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well, David. And our other good, very good friend, Max Boot of CFR, the Washington Post, um, man about town, uh, is in town in New York City. How are you doing, Max? I'm good. Enjoying the this nice spring day. We keep hearing, you know, we're at a turning point in Ukraine, um, and there's going to be an offensive, and it's going to be in the spring or maybe the later spring. Maybe it'll be a summer offensive. Um, and I just wonder, you know, Max, you're following this closely. What do you think? Are we at a turning point, or is this just another twist and turn in a war that is now, you know, in its 10th year? Well, you know, David, as I think somebody once said that economists successfully predicted like something like eight of the last six recessions. And I feel like military historians have successfully predicted like eight of the last six turning points in in conflicts. Very hard to you kind of you know it in retrospect, but very hard to know in advance what a turning point actually amounts to. And I think, you know, there is kind of a constant hope uh, in the United States that the quote unquote good guys will win a decisive battle and the war will finish and, and we can everybody can go home. And that's kind of the way it works in movies very often, but very seldom in real life where even supposedly decisive battles often do not actually decide the outcome of wars. In other words, uh, wars can often continue for years, even after one side or another has gained some big battlefield victory. And it really comes down to simply endurance and the willingness to to sacrifice. And sadly, uh, that is something that Putin has in spades because he has no regard for human life, either Russian life or Ukrainian life. Uh, so he is willing to sacrifice as many men as it takes, basically, uh, until he achieves whatever an, an acceptable end state for him in, in, in Ukraine is going to be. But at the same time, his armed forces have shown themselves to be fairly low quality and unmotivated. 
uh, in part probably because they know they're fighting for a guy who doesn't care whether they live or die. Uh, and on the other side, you have the Ukrainians who are extraordinarily motivated because they're fighting for their country, for their homes. They're standing against the ruthless barbarian that has invaded their their territory. And so, and they've also gotten a lot of aid from the West, although not as much as they should have. Uh, so that's just by way of setting up this this offensive. I mean, I don't think we should expect that the Ukrainian offensive, whenever it's mounted, is going to end the war, uh, even if it's very successful, as I hope it will be. But I, at the very least, my hope is that uh, it will drive the Russians back, liberate some more Ukrainian territory, and you know, hopefully communicate to more of the Russian elites that uh, they should not be drinking the Kremlin's vodka, that this war is not going well. And, and, and perhaps that could set the stage down the road uh, for a more successful negotiation to end the war than is possible at this at this current time. So, Corey, some of the signs that we're seeing about the Russians certainly don't suggest that they're um, having a great time of it. They had the May Day Parade, uh, the Victory Day Parade that they have in, in the beginning of May in Moscow. And there was one tank, uh, not the rows and rows of them that we see, and it was a World War II vintage tank um, uh, one of Putin's uh, great uh, erstwhile supporters, uh, the head of the Wagner Group, um, has taken to just taking shots at Putin on a regular basis, calling him grandpa. You know, being you know, saying I'm pulling out my troops because we're not getting ammunition. And then they said, okay, we'll send ammunition. And then they didn't get the ammunition. And it's like I'm going to pull my troops out now. Uh, looks like, I mean, they've been fighting and fighting and fighting for Bakhmut, which they have essentially turned into a hole in the ground, um, but have made little progress. And there seem to be some reports of some Russians pulling back in, in, on, along the eastern front of this war. Um, what, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I think uh, two things, uh, both that the Russian military has had an offensive going on since January that has produced basically, you know, a hundred square yards of progress for them. And it looks to me like the Russian military is no longer capable of offensive, successful offensive operations. I think that's what Ukraine proved in Bakhmut that they could grind down some of the most capable of the remaining Russian units and prevent them from making significant offensive gains. The second thing I think it shows is that um, the Russian... Uh, so I agree with Max that the, the only way this war ends is with the Russian governing class acknowledging defeat. You know, Ukrainians can and should keep fighting until they have liberated the entirety of their population and the entirety of their territory. But even if they succeed at that, Russia will likely continue to do what it is doing now, which is try and terrorize Ukrainian, the Ukrainian population with attacks on civilian targets. 
Um, and so uh, military force is going to solve this problem eventually, but that the military success of Ukrainian uh, forces has to have the political effect of Russia acknowledging that they are have lost the war. I think we see the initial signs of that already. Uh, you know, uh, whether it was a Ukrainian or a Russian organization that sent the drone attack on the Kremlin, uh, that's a psychologically significant thing to be able to hold at risk the governmental capital. Um, the, the points you made about Prigozhin, David, I think are really consequential. You know, several weeks ago, he started uh, talking about how, you know, Wagner's work was done in Ukraine. They were going to pivot back to Africa. Um, and, and it's been downhill since then, right? Like Bakhmut was supposed to be the Wagner group's uh, argument for why they're the real military force of the Russian Federation. And they haven't done any better than any other Russian units have done. And the vituperativeness of the arguments between Shoigu, uh, Prigozhin, and other Russian military leaders, the firing of so many senior Russian military officers by Putin, it, my guess is in frustration that nobody can find a successful strategy to win Russia the war. Um, and the pathetic little parade they just had, uh, which showed how far Russia's military has fallen and how incapable the political leadership that chose this war is conducting this war. I think are, you know, the sounds of defeat at a distance. Yeah. Well, well. Um, well put. Um, now, if they are the sounds of defeat at a distance, Rosa, then presumably, uh, uh, since we are supporting Ukraine, we should do everything in their power uh, to make that defeat come closer and closer. This would seem a good moment to provide them with additional weapons and support. Uh, this is compelling enough to the United Kingdom, that they're providing them with longer range missiles, something that they've been wanting a long time and that we have been reluctant to give them. Uh, they have also received, I think, 10 MiG-29s in the past week, um, uh, which, you know, is going to be helpful to their air offensive. Um, uh, and it raises the question, isn't this the time for the U.S. to set aside all these sort of empty Russian warnings about red lines and provide longer range uh, weapons like attackums. Isn't this the time to provide them with other forms of air support in order to help them close the deal? So the answer to that depends on whether you share Corey's optimism that the Ukrainians have the will be able to retake the territory that Russia currently controls and that the Russian political elites will realize that they have been defeated, um, or whether you think that, uh, and, and eventually force Putin to come to some kind of accommodation, 
or whether you think that those Russian red lines are real. And they don't have to be Russian red lines that are real. They just have to be Putin and whatever inner circles and in control uh, to think that they're real. You know, I mean, my fear remains the same as it's always been, right? Which and 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 I think clearly it's the same as certainly some in the Biden administration have had since the beginning, which is that uh, you know Putin could still use nuclear weapons in some way, shape, or form if he feels that his political survival is threatened. And we don't know if he would. Uh, clearly, the Chinese have been quietly putting pressure on him to say, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, even our support has its limits, and that would be the limit. Um, we don't we don't know if he would. We don't know how many people in his in his inner circle militarily would need to go along with it. I don't you know, I don't know enough about the Russian nuclear command structure uh, to know. Um and we don't know what exactly it would take for him to decide that he had to make that decision. But if that's if that's something that we really should fear, then I think we have the same. I have the same concern that that I think I've always had, which is, you know, the the Ukrainians are for all the reasons that Corey mentioned, very aggressive and understandably so. You know that their their nation has been invaded and and Russia has been committing war crimes uh, with so far relative impunity in terms of the practical impact on them. Um, and they're going to keep fighting. Given long-range missiles, they're going to be extremely tempted to strike further into Russian territory. Um, does that at some point precipitate, uh, you know, Putin to decide that he's got nothing left to lose and it's time to use his one his one final trump card, which is his ability to, to cross that nuclear threshold? Um, if the answer to that is yes, and if we can't control what the Ukrainians do, then we probably shouldn't be, you know, leading them onto temptation by giving them the means to do exactly that. Um, on the other hand, you know, and, and I don't, I just, I don't, I don't know that, I certainly don't know the answer to this question. I don't know that any of us do. You know, on the other hand, if, if Putin does really understand that he cannot do that, that it would be a different sort of political suicide if he actually made use of nuclear weapons, if he understands that. If in fact the Russian political elite is beginning to accept that this war, this conflict is unwinnable on their end, and it is unwinnable um, on their end, clearly, uh, whether the defeat is clean cut or not, is unwinnable. Um, if they're beginning to accept that, and if Putin is beginning to accept that, then this could be the time to let the Ukrainians make one last push that sort of find, you know, seals the deal and says, okay, time, everybody, time to come to the table for real this time, not just with, with, with fake peace talks. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I feel, I still feel quite nervous about it. I'm not quite as, uh, bullish on, on Ukrainian good sense, I suppose, nor am I, I've never been bullish on, on Putin's good sense. Um, well, actually, I was slightly more bullish on Putin's good sense prior to his invasion of Ukraine, <laughs> and now I'm not at all bullish on Putin's good sense. So I, it, it makes me very nervous. Um, and there are, as I said, I mean, if I knew the answer to the questions that I phrased, it would be, it would, I, I would feel like I had more of an opinion. I'm, I'm, I'm giving this completely unsatisfying answer, which is that I don't know, um, and that it all makes me nervous. And I'm, I'm hoping that maybe Max or David or Corey, you could persuade me that all my 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 fears are for naught, and I should just um, you know learn to love the bomb and learn to love long range missiles and so forth. Well, I'm going to give Max and Corey a chance to do that in a moment. I don't believe after they're done, I'll have to, uh, but I do want to say that I am having a moment of misty sentimentality here when we are contrasting the 
optimism of Corey with the pessimism of Rosa, <laughs> the, the, the sparkling tiara of optimism. You know, I'm, always, I'm, the, always, the, 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 I'm always wondering when the apocalypse will occur and thinking it's got to be right around the corner now, right? Exactly. I mean, we've been waiting for exactly. years. You know, you people wonder why we've been doing this for now eight years. I mean, Deep State Radio next month will hit its sixth anniversary. You know, you sort of say, how, how, I mean, there weren't even podcasts back then. We were like talking into a paper <laughs> no, cup on a string. Yeah, it was strange. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, why does it go on? And it's because one of you is optimistic and one of you is pessimistic. <laughs> and that's a formula for podcasts. I think but, I'm realistic yeah. and Rosa's pessimistic. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, we can get into our discussion of people who call themselves realists at another time. Max, I know you have strong views on this issue of us providing them with more support. So why don't you make that case? Well, I think the surest way to end the war and to therefore to decrease the risks of superpower confrontation or even nuclear conflict, I think the surest way to avoid that is by providing more support to Ukraine to shorten the war. And I just think that if we would provide them with the longer range attack arms on the F-16s that they need, they would be able to safeguard more of their population and to have more success in driving out the Russian invaders, uh, whereas uh, if we don't provide them maximum support, I think what you risk having is a frozen conflict, which Ukraine has been since 2014 anyway, uh, where the Russians basically have swallowed about 20% of the country. But And you could even say from a very realpolitik American standpoint uh, that, okay, Maybe we're willing to sacrifice 20% of Ukraine to achieve peace with Russia. But even that's not really on offer because if you give, uh, you know, to, to borrow from, uh, you know, Mel Brooks or whoever, I mean, uh, if you want peace with Russia and you give them a piece of Ukraine, uh, it's not going to be, uh, you know, peace in our time. I'm, I'm sort of mangling, combining Mel Brooks with Neville Chamberlain, but... Uh, it's not going to be peace in our time. It's just going to be basically. Oh, Brooks, you can add zombies. Exactly. It's going to be basically, you know, maybe a temporary ceasefire while Putin rearms for the next go around. And we're going to be fighting an even bigger war down the road as long as he maintains this ambition of taking over Ukraine, which I think he still has. So, you know, I just think that from both a realpolitik and a moral standpoint, it's in our interest to do everything possible to aid the Ukrainians right now, not in, you know, striking deep into Russia, but in taking back their own territory. And I don't think we can allow ourselves to be bluffed into surrender by Putin's nuclear saber at him, because if that works, we're going to live in a very dangerous world because then the message is going to go to China. You know, all you have to do is, is uh, mention your nuclear weapons and uh, the Americans will run up the white flag. So, hey, let's launch a, you know, an attack on, on Taiwan tomorrow. Or it'll also send a message to every country around the world that the only way to guarantee their own security is to acquire nuclear weapons. So I, I don't want to think we sent think that of, message decades ago, unfortunately. I mean, I think we have sent that message to some extent. The cases of Gaddafi and, and Saddam Hussein kind of deliver that message. But I think it would be amplified tenfold 
if Putin gets away with swallowing a neighboring state because he has nuclear weapons and they don't. So I don't think we can allow that precedent to be to be set right here. And I honestly don't think there's a very high probability of Putin using nuclear weapons. It's not zero, but I think it's still fairly low because I, I think, you know, as, as Rosa said, his one major ally, China, is dead set against it. And I think he's probably calculated, at least I hope he's calculated, that there's not going to be any immediate military advantage to using nuclear weapons. And, and indeed, there will be massive costs. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've been worried about this for a year. That doesn't mean we shouldn't worry. But, you know, we've we've sort of set these red lines on ourselves, like we won't, you know, we'll send them smaller weapons, but we won't send them high Mars or we won't send them tanks. And we've kind of busted through all those red lines and it's been perfectly fine and it's enhanced Ukrainian capability. So I don't see any reason to assume that providing F-16s or attack themselves, that's going to be the real red line. And then Putin is going to go nuclear because remember, he, to some extent, deters us with his nuclear weapons, but we have a big nuclear arsenal too, and we deter him as well. So remember, there's a reason why uh, it was called during the Cold War, it was called mutual assured destruction because, you know, both sides are deterred That's from from the use of those so weapons. So reassuring, Max. Yeah, no, Rosa feels much better. Um, her, mutual assured destruction runs through her head on a regular basis. But, 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 Corey, you know, Max brings up a really important point. Uh, this is no longer a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's no longer a war between Russia and Ukraine with the backing of NATO. This is a global conflict in terms of its implications. And the message to China, if Putin's nuclear blackmail works, is make build those nukes. And right now we see them building potentially 100 warheads a year for the next decade or more, um, uh, getting, you know, increasing uh, the size of their arsenal precisely because of this reason. Because if they do that, you know, if they have a big arsenal, they threaten to use it. Uh, it gives them the latitude to do more of what they might want in Taiwan or or, or elsewhere. Um, and that maybe the counter argument is, you know, we, we need to be a little bit more aggressive here and a little bit less constrained. And I was talking to a former senior um, U.S. Uh, Army general the other day, and he said, look, the rules of engagement ought to be wherever Russia launches an attack, they should be able to strike it. What do you think? I'm sympathetic to that argument. Um, but I also think, uh, first of all, the Biden administration won't do that. Um, but second of all, you know, the White House isn't crazy to be worried about either horizontal or vertical escalation. I, I think they have the balance. I share Max's view that they are being more timid than they need to be, uh, given what Ukraine is suffering and what Russia's possibilities are. Um, but they're not crazy to worry about it being drawn into the fight and trying to calibrate the amount of our assistance to uh, remaining below a threshold that would in any way uh, either precipitate a change in Russian behavior or 
to Russians or beyond to seemingly justify it. Um, Can I just ask a question here? When you say horizontal escalation, you mean spreading the war to someplace else? Yeah, geographically. I mean, one of the ways in which nuclear deterrence has worked in this war is it has prevented the Russians from attacking the enormous logistics base just across Ukraine's border with Poland, where we are shipping all of the weapons and ammunition that we're sending to Russia. I mean, if we weren't there um, and Poland wasn't a NATO ally, it, it would be an obvious military target for Russia to strike in order to limit the flow of weapons coming in on the other side of the war. Um, but precisely because, you know, Putin may say he's fighting the entirety of the West, but the West actually isn't yet fighting him. And it remains in his interest for the West not to be fighting him. So horizontal escalation would be attacking with conventional forces, um, Poland, the United States, another NATO ally, widening the war while it remains conventional, vertical escalation um, in the in the military vernacular is escalating from a conventional to a nuclear war, whether in Ukraine or beyond. I share Max's skepticism that the Russian leadership would find either of those things in their interest, because uh, you know they're losing a war to Ukraine. Uh, they will lose a war even faster and more decisively if they bring anybody else in on Ukraine's side. And whether they do that by attacking a NATO ally or they do it by using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine or beyond, I think either of those things would precipitate um, much more American and NATO involvement on Ukraine's side of the war. Yeah, so vertical escalation, they lose China potentially as their ally. Horizontal escalation, they lose the war more quickly. It all made me one, think... Of, one thing... The, I'm sorry, David. Uh, excuse me. Go on. Uh, I was going to say, one thing that the Russians have been experimenting with is gray zone warfare, right? Uh, yeah. Refusing to allow grain shipments, stealing grain shipments on the high seas, uh, attacking energy pipelines, attempting to weaponize energy as, as a, as a weapon of war. So far, the countries of the West, if not the countries of the global South, have been enormously resilient and resistant to allowing the Russians to succeed in that realm as they have succeeded with nuclear threats. Um, but, but it's much less effective with countries that are struggling with increased costs of food supplies or increased availability. Yeah. It's also worth noting that, uh, one of the gray zone possibilities we talked about at the beginning of the war, when many of us thought that the Russians might choose that as a big portion of their activities, um, is the, some of their, uh, cyber and, disinformation activities in the past, which were facilitated by whom? Mr. Prigozhin, um, uh, who, who was one of the, the sort of leaders in that respect, 
uh, and we don't know how cooperative he is now. As far as the vertical and horizontal thing goes, and it's entirely off the point, but I do remember my grandfather um, used to speak of dancing as a vertical euphemism for a horizontal desire. Um, uh, <laughs> um, has not, nothing to do with any of this, but I couldn't help but think about it. Uh, this is Fabulous. the point in the show where we say, hey, those of you out there in the general public, wasn't that good? Don't you want to listen to the rest of this thing? You should become a member in order to do that. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership for $5 a month. You get all of our podcasts. And as you may be noting, we have a growing number of podcasts here. We just don't have uh, the, the the DSR podcast during the day or the morning podcast uh, of news that you've gotten used to. Um, but uh, we also have Michael Weiss's good podcast. Now the foreign office, we've got words matter. Um, starting on Monday, we're adding a Monday podcast to the DSR series of podcasts, which is going to look at Intel related issues with our friend Mark Polymeropoulos and some of his former colleagues from the CIA. Um, uh, of course, we've also got, um, uh, Secret Life of Cookies and the podcast that we do with Young Voices. Uh, and there are a couple more coming. So this is the time to become a member. For now, thanks to you and the general public for joining and for you our members. Stand by. We're gonna, we're gonna keep going with this conversation.